0: This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. We have got a lot to talk about today. I've been going over her Ballmeister and the I-70 Strangler and whether they are the same person, which the general consensus seems to be that they are. And I mentioned that Larry Eiler was also killing during the same time period. So we're going to talk about him on top of those things. And we're going to have a Dexter update. So now we're up to five episodes of Dexter. And I'm going to go through the episodes real quickly and we'll talk about what's going on. And as I had mentioned before, the serial killer that they're focusing on this season is based on Robert Hansen. I will also tell you some stuff about Robert Hansen and then we'll compare how the serial killer in the series compares to the real killer in real life. So, get ready, lab rats. We're gonna get it. To set the scene, in 1972, men start to disappear in Chicago. In 1978, it's revealed that they were victims of John Wayne Gacy. There were a total of 33 men primarily homosexual, that he had murdered and buried most of them underneath his house. In 1980, in Indiana and Ohio, along I-70, men were found murdered. 19, also in 1980, Indianapolis men began disappearing. Primarily, again, these are mostly homosexual men. Then in 1982, bodies were found in Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois that all have similar murder methods. But most of the victims originated from uptown Chicago. So again, we see there's a tie to Chicago. Two years later, in 1984, those bodies were revealed to be victims of Larry Eiler. In 1991, there were 12 victims of the I-70 Strangler, and the bodies stopped popping up. Then in 1966, the Indianapolis men that had begun disappearing in 1980, it turns out, Herb Ballmeister probably killed them. There were 11 that they could pinpoint for him. And then they started to realize that he was probably the I-70 Strangler. So we've got from 1972 to 1978, in Chicago, 33 men disappeared because of Gacy. In 1980 to 1996, Indianapolis, 11 men are murdered by Ballmeister. In 1980 to 1991... You had the I-70 Stranglings, which was 12 men, which was probably Baumeister. And 1982 to 1984, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin were all Eiler, And again, most of those victims originated from uptown Chicago. So I haven't really talked a lot about Gacy because I think most people know, especially if you're a true crime buff, you probably know (laughs) stuff about Gacy. So the main reason I'm bringing it up is because... He killed in Chicago, and so did Eiler. And Eiler was even, had trial in the same place that Gacy had, was convicted. So you see where this city was from 1972 to 1978, had this happen with Gacy, and then just a few years later, then it's revealed that Eiler was, you know, was killing. So it's just that 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 trauma of realizing there's, you know, there's several serial killers. And so I think it's important to bring up Gacy to, to really give you that picture of he was doing that while this stuff was happening and it all kind of overlaps a little bit. And looking at that timeline as a reminder, Ballmeister, Eiler, and the I-70 Strangler were all happening at the same time. And some of the things, some of the methods of killing were similar enough that it was hard to decide who was doing what and if there was more than one killer, and that kind of thing. To reiterate that in 1991, the I-70 Strangler bodies stopped, and then it turns out that's the same time period Bobmeister bought Fox Hollow Farm. So it's possible that he was the I-70 Strangler was just kind of tossing the bodies wherever, and then he got a, his home base where he felt comfortable to keep the bodies there. Of course, Casey was before them, So his victims weren't confused with Eilers and Baumeister. And the thing is, if Baumeister isn't the I-70 Strangler, no one else has been, no one has officially been convicted of it. So if it's not him, which they have pretty closely tied him with things that I think it's convincing enough, but if it's not him, then someone just got, there was a third guy that just got loose, that he was never caught, and he was able to kill 12 men. The I-70 killer, I tried to look and see who all they thought could be. And just a quick search of... I I searched around. I couldn't really find much where they had any other, like, big suspects or there was no, like, articles that popped up and said, hey, we think it's this guy or this guy was questioned. From what I can tell from the research that was done on this, and they do cite some sources, 47-year-old Duncan Patterson, a Florida native, apparently, he was... Uh, a suspect, but then he was exclu- excluded. There's uh, August Gus Cato was detained and interrogated, but apparently he was released. And then, of course, they weren't sure if Eiler did it, but then we'll get into more of that. So it seems like those are really the only people that I were able to f- was able to find any information about who were suspects. And, you know, like this one dude got one sentence from it, so... Um, like, there was one sentence about him in this, and I couldn't find, like, anything else. So, there's that. Let's talk about Eiler. Eiler, Larry Eiler, was the youngest of four. His parents were divorced. His dad, when they were together, his dad was an alcoholic and abusive. Well, then even after the divorce, his mom remarried, and he had two abusive stepdads. He was bullied, and he started to have some trouble. So, his mom sent him to a home for troubled boys for six months— he wound up dropping out of high school and got his GED, and he struggled with homosexuality. So, that is a very important thing to note that that was a major, major, major motivation for his killing. He had 21 to 23 or more victims that we know of. We'll start off where March 22nd, 1982, Jay Reynolds, 26, was stabbed and found on the outskirts of Lexington, Kentucky. October 3rd, 1982, Delavoid Baker, a 14-year-old, was found strangled on a roadside north of Indianapolis. 1023 So 20 days later, Stephen Crockett, a 19-year-old, was found stabbed 32 times, four in the head. Lots of anger. And that was in Lowell, Indiana, November 6th, Robert Foley was found in a Joliet, Joliet, Illinois field. Now, I have a note here that apparently he was later removed from the list. So, this is another thing that we will discuss: is how these names sometimes appear on the different lists for like Eiler or, or Baumeister or I seventy killer, and I'll go through that towards the end. But this kind of just gives you another idea of okay, oh, so here is another person that looks like it fits this pattern, but was it? They're just finding these dead people. On Christmas Day, nineteen eighty-two, John Johnson, twenty-five years old, was found in a field in Belshaw, Indiana. December 28th, John Roach, 21-year-old, was stabbed. Now, the others had tended to be, like, when they were stabbed, they would be, like, sliced open. Uh, This guy wasn't sliced open, but there was still a lot of rage, you could tell, in the murder. He was found near Belleville. At this point, it's important to point out my source. (laughs) Let's do that, because that's important. My main source is Freed to Kill, the true story of serial murderer Larry Eiler. And the shocking travesty of justice that enabled him to kill again. By Gerilyn Colerick, with Wayne Clatt. And it's a big old motherfucker. Like, it's a pretty big book. And I admit, it took me a while to get through it and it was kind of pissing me off. Because there were lots of details in there and I like details. But some of them I was like, god damn, I don't need to know that he thought that that was funny when this happened or that he accidentally smashed his finger. I don't think that's really going to help out. I know that they're trying to like paint a picture and hope you really get into it. But I don't need all of that. I want the details and I want a little bit of ambiance, but Jesus. So, uh, (laughs) um, she's a reporter that had gotten involved, was involved with um, everything as things were happening. So, that's my main source. I also, of course, looked through several of my books, my reference books, and that includes. That includes Hunting Humans, Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, Volume 1 by Michael Newton. World Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, Volume 2 by Susan Hall. Serial Killers, Insatiable Passion by David Lester. The Human Predator, Catherine Ramsland. Serial Killer Files by Harold Schechter. Big Book of Serial Killers, Volume 1 by Jack Rosewood. And this Time Serial Killers reference book. And then, of course, I I usually double-check some things online. As I'm researching. So at this point, it's important to point out, I'm sure you noticed I said Lexington, Kentucky, Indianapolis, got Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky. So it's kind of all over the place. Well, I'll point out specifically that these are, these are all over the place. So they're in different counties. At this point in 1980s, they didn't have a system where they could, it just pinged each other. So cops didn't know if if things were related necessarily, unless something happened. That helped them to connect those dots. Also on December 28th, when John Roach was found, they found Stephen, again, A-G-A-N, 23 years old. He was trussed up. His abdomen and chest were sliced open. He had gashes in his throat and abs, rope around his ankles, and just, again, there's that obvious rage. He apparently, the body was found... In Newport, Indiana, they think he was dressed like a deer and hanged upside down in a nearby building. And when I say dressed like a deer, I <laughs> I don't mean like he was, you know, like I'm gonna be Rudolph today. And someone shot him because they thought his nose was too bright. I don't know. They hung him up like you would you after you killed a deer. And you know you would they call it dressing a deer when you take out the organs and shit. So that's what I mean. He was dressed. They think that he was dressed like a deer. And that is reminiscent of Ed Gein. We know that he had a couple of his victims where he did that, where he dressed them like a deer. And then he used their flesh to literally dress like them. Then the interesting thing is it turns out that, I'm going to a little spoiler alert, they find out later that Eiler worked right near the car wash that Stephen worked at. So that's probably how Stephen got on his radar. And Eiler's work, by the way, is a Project Safe Program of Equal Economic Opportunity Commission. The neediest elderly people apply for help with electric and gas bills, and he helps determine who gets that. So you see this, uh, so it's like a government-type job where he has that nominal amount of power, and it's just always interesting to see what they do for their day job. So Stephen, he was found same day as John Roach in different places, not too far from each other. But since they were in different counties, the the it just so happened those counties didn't have their own forensic pathologist. So both Egan and Roach were taken to the same pathologist who noticed, hey, these look pretty close. Um, the reporter that wrote the book happened to talk to him and say, look, I really think she um, also linked other murders. So she saw this pattern and mentioned to him, like, hey, why don't you tell the state cops because this needs looked into. Well, he told the state cops and nothing was really done. Now, one of the problems that the cops were finding is linking the victims they had so far is that some of it seemed that they were um, homosexual in nature, not like necessarily because of a sexual attack, but they were things that were clues that they were. And, and, you know, so some some victims were known to be homosexuals. But then the problem is... (laughs) And I quote, it's like they didn't seem gay. So they may talk to people and say, oh, no, he wasn't gay. But then you know how it goes. If you're closeted, you may not, people around you may not know because you don't want them to. So that was one problem is that they felt like some of them didn't fit that demographic. And then they thought there were two people doing some together. So they thought there were like accomplices. So they thought it could be, it's not all necessarily tied because you have a lot of different circumstances. Well, then there's a survivor that comes forward, named Craig Townsend. 21 years old, he was drugged and beaten, but he escaped from the hospital before the investigation. When they were able to talk to him when he was first, before he ran off, Stephen Crockett was found dead 10 miles from where Craig Townsend had been abandoned. And both of them had Placidil in their system. So that's interesting that there's like a, I think it's considered like a hypnotic drug that they both had that in their system, and... It's an, all in the same area, and apparently he he didn't want to get involved with anything, so that's why he hightailed it. Well, then another survivor comes forward named Mark Henry. He went for a ride with this guy. The guy had a knife. He handcuffed him. He stabs him. So this is like one of those things where he's going for a ride, so Eiler propositions him. He doesn't know Eiler's name at this point. He just says, this a dude propositioned me. I eventually gave into it, but then he pulled a knife and handcuffed me. Things got out of control. I tried to run away, and he ended up stabbing me. And then he gets away for reals and was able to go to the cops and is saved. So he survives, but it's just soon discovered that it was Larry Eiler. And instead of pressing charges, the Eiler's lawyer paid him $2,500. It's like, look, here's that'll cover your medical bills. That'll cover that the problems that you had there, and maybe we can just make this go away now. And the guy agrees. Okay, I'll go ahead and I won't press charges and we'll all move forward with our lives. And so Eiler pled innocent and was dismissed. So he gets away. Then we see some other victims start to pop up, and it's noted that they are, they're beginning to be, like, totally mutilated, some disemboweled. At this point, Eiler had moved to Chicago. March 4th, 1983, Edgar Underkofler, 27 years old, is found in Danville, Illinois, with those uh, similar injuries. April 4th, Gustavo Herrera, 28 years old, is found, and his right hand had been cut off. So that was kind of an interesting change, that the right hand was cut off and then it was found near the body. And this was in Lake Forest, Illinois, that he was found. A few days later, Irvin Dwayne Gibson, 16-year-old, he was found with his body over the corpse of a dog, He wasn't dismembered, but his overalls had been pulled down and he had been stabbed specifically like in the abdomen area, abdominal area. That was also in Lake Forest, Illinois. At that point, they did have some, someone thought because he was found over a corpse of a dog and he, that maybe that was a satanic thing. So that's another thing throwing him off is thinking maybe there's Satan worship or some kind of cult activity involved. So then they weren't sure, oh, was this a cult thing? Should we include this with the others? On May 9th, two more bodies were found. One was found, um, Jimmy Roberts was found. He was an 18-year-old man. He was one of the few African-American men that Isler killed. He was found in the water with his pants down, stabbed 30 times in Cook County, Illinois. Then Daniel McNeve was found, 21-year-old, pants at his feet, stabbed. There was no sexual attack, but he was stabbed 11 times in the neck, five times in the back, and 11 times in the abdomen. There were also some uh, superficial Wounds like it, he was being tortured, and then there was one that was deep enough that some of the intestine was protruding. He had binding marks around his wrists and ankles, and this was found in Henderson City. So now, suddenly, the cops are paying attention to connections. Now, so now they're starting to try to wind thing, you know—see um, if things have patterns, and you know, see who could be related to what and tied to this certain killer. Now, the pattern that they were picking—the patterns they were picking up on—is the men were 18 to 26 numerous stab wounds including the abdomen area all of the victims tended to be what they called what they said were hustlers or hitchhikers all of them had their pants down there were lig- ligature marks on their hands some of them were wearing white tube socks I'll get into that in a second combs were found near some of them there was th- some of the waltz and t-shirts were disappeared disappeared so they wondered if those were trophies and at least three of them had placidil in their system Again, we see the appearance of Placidil. So let's talk about those white socks, because that's, uh, that's kind of interesting, right? That they, uh, well, okay, so no, white socks are not interesting. <laughs> what is interesting that, uh, is that they didn't appear to belong to any of the victims that were wearing the white tube socks. So I'm going to quote here from Freed to Kill. Both victims had on their feet white tube socks with yellow and blue markings, Yet their families said the men never wore socks like that, and none could be found in their homes. And now referring to some victims that I'll get to here in a moment, Sam McPherson wondered about socks too, but from a later investigation. He had noticed that all four victims in the Newton County barnyard had on white socks, but two of them had a single sock with a blue and red stripe. To McPherson, that meant that although the bodies were found clothed, the killer had had them at least partially undressed and perhaps naked at some time, at the same time, something the autopsies could not determine. Or, perhaps the killer had just removed his victim's socks as souvenirs and replaced them with new ones so no one would know. But the mystery of the socks remained unsolved. So, yeah. He, uh, apparently the killer had a thing with um, white tube socks where he would just bring them with him, I guess, and put them on the victims for some reason. No idea. And uh, I'm happy to hear any theories and, and especially if he just, although the theory of if he took them off to keep them and then wanted to throw people off to think that the socks were theirs, why would he not put, why would he have put two, two of the same sock on two separate people? So only each one had one sock. So you have two dudes that each are only wearing one white sock with these stripes on it. It's weird. <laughs> I, I don't know. So this is one of those things where he never said... And we will never know. But it's uh, it's interesting to ponder on. On July 2nd, an unidentified an body was found in Fort County, Illinois. August 31st, Ralph Calise, 28 years old, was found bound with clothesline, surgical tape, stabbed 17 times, his pants were lowered, and there were handcuff marks on him in a field near Lake Forest, Illinois. So here... There are some more what they consider ritualistic signs. They do refer to there was that severed hand. So the one victim where his right hand was cut off, the victim found on top of the dead dog, and then the appearance of protruding intestines, that maybe those were all ritualistic signs. So they're wondering if maybe there's a satanic or cult-like thing happening there. And here's where they really start to notice that several of the victims lived in the same neighborhood in uptown Chicago but they were disposed of elsewhere. So they start making these connections like maybe this killer lives in this specific area or hangs out in this specific area often and, that, and then he sees them. So then he ends up picking them up but then disposing of them way down away from where they live so that way people might not make those connections. At this point, there's a cop that saw a truck on the side of the road. There was a man who appeared to be bound. So he pulls over and like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, oh, you know, really happening, but it appeared fishy. So they wound up looking through his vehicle and cops were, did have iLearn on their radar. And I'll get into that more here in a bit, but basically they never officially arrested him and they did go through his vehicle, but it was not, they didn't have like a warrant to do it. So this causes problems later down the line when they want to actually try him. So when they looked in his car, they found surgical tape, nylon rope, and a a bloody knife. They take him to the station and they question him, but he's never formally charged and he's eventually let go. And they do say that during the questioning, okay, and again about his homosexuality, he did not, he was so uncomfortable being homosexual or talking about it that he just would not talk about it. He would talk about anything, basically, <laughs> except for that. And you could tell it was just knee-jerk reaction. It was not good to be homosexual. And it was just went every, against every fiber of his being that, that that was okay with him. So, for example, during the questioning, and I quote, It was strange to see a man at ease when answering questions about multiple murders, and yet unable to complete his sentences when referring to his sex life. His feelings were so deep, so rooted to every part of him that he could not even lie about them. Anytime they would say, are you homosexual? He would be like, you know, I don't want to talk about this. I can't talk about this. So he couldn't even lie. And just think about that, is that you are so fearful and angry and full of hatred about this aspect of yourself that you can't deal with it at all, that you can't talk about it. And, and how much conflict that causes. So that explains a lot of, you know, what, as they're talking to him and they, they can see how upsetting it is to him, that they can understand, well, if he's this upset about it, then that explains the rage in the murders, if this is him. Is that he hates being homosexual so much that he's going to take it out on other people because he, you know can't handle it. So he's not going to take it out on himself. He's going to take it out on someone else. And it's just really fucking sad that that was so, such a conflict in him. And it's really sad because how many other people out there have had that kind of rage and confusion because they haven't been able to acknowledge that aspect of themselves. And I'm not saying... That, that makes it okay, obviously, and, and a lot of people have that conflict and don't wind up being serial killers, as we've stated time and time again. But in this case, this is something that was a part of his serial killer soup. It was part of the recipe that made him a serial killer. So when they let him go, went to get a lawyer, and uh, his lawyer <laughs> thought he was innocent. Like, he seriously believed Eiler was innocent. And it's important to point out at this point... That most people found him charming and warm and helpful and spontaneous. And his co-workers pointed out, like, he even played elf. He dressed like an elf for a Christmas party. Dude's six feet tall. And he worked out. He was a workout buff. So the six feet tall, six foot tall buff guy acted like an elf. And uh, apparently he was just pretty charismatic. But then again, we see... If he looked like a serial killer and acted like one, maybe people would have suspected, maybe people would have stayed away. So we see the how they're able to have these dual personalities coexist. Here's a part that's a little confusing. Most of the sources that I saw said the next body found was Eric Hansen, and he was found on September 27th, 1983, and he was 18 years old, but then... I'm seeing other things where he was 14 years old, he was 16 years old. Everything agrees that he was dismembered. In one source, well, and then even a couple sources say that he was found on October 4th. So I'm kind of, that was kind of confusing. Like, what, what was the actual day that he was found? Well, then in Hunting Humans by Michael Newton, he says Derek Hansen and that he's 14. And that was the only source that I could find that was where he was referred to as Derek. Everything I looked at, everything else that I saw, I looked up several articles. And I apparently it was a typo and he misheard or misspelled or something. So it's Eric Hansen. I still don't know if he's 16 or 18. But the bottom line is this poor kid who was, you know, a teenager was found in either September or October dismembered in Kenosha, Wisconsin. They had found—according to—so the book said, which again, that's my main source, the book said that he was found on October 4th in garbage bags. So someone found a garbage bag with a torso in it, which had been drained of blood. The rest of the body was not found. The way they were able to identify him is that the torso had a bunch of operation scars. And so they did x-rays, and they were able to determine— that he was Eric Hansen. And apparently in this, he said, that says he's 18 years old. Then October 15th, there was a, someone that they couldn't identify found in Rensselaer, Indiana. This is the thing that is really interesting is as I was researching, I discovered just this month, this victim from 1983 was identified as William Joseph Lewis, 19 years old. Just this year. That's like 40 fucking years. It just, it blows your mind. But then it's also amazing because now we know who it is. So it gives you hope that even if we weren't able to stop these things from happening, that at least the families can get closure at some point, as long as we keep trying and we keep digging. A few days later is where the aforementioned four bodies found on a farm happened. So they found four bodies all in shallow graves. One of them was decapitated, all of them had their pants down, and it was in Newton County. Two of them were identified, one was Michael Bauer, 22 years old, one was John Bartlett, 19 years old, and the barn was marked with an inverted pentagram. So there we go again with, is this a satanic or a cult thing, or is it just possible we happened upon a barn that someone had put a pentagram on just to be whatever, you know, like, because people graffiti, who the fuck knows? So I don't know. I don't think that there was anything to do with the cult because I mean, other than those four little things of, you know, like the hand and the, and the intestines, he was filled with rage. So I don't think that the intestines coming out was some kind of like cult thing. I think he, that was his thing that he liked to do and that the hand thing, like he was obviously dismembering. So the hand thing being removed, I don't think that matters because then they found a torso where everything was removed and being on, bearing on top of the dog. I mean, sometimes serial killers kill dogs too you know, um, which actually I'm going to talk about a little bit. Um, Robert Hansen, I wasn't going to mention it, but it popped in my head now. I did read, just now when I was looking back through my notes, he admitted he killed a dog when he had a victim. The, the, The dog happened to be in the way, so he killed the dog with the victim. So I don't think it's too out of the ordinary that maybe the guy had a dog with him and he wanted to shut the dog up. And it's not like a reference to a satanic whatever ritual. December 5th, they found an unidentified man who was stabbed in the chest, no shirt, pants down, and the white socks in Effingham, Illinois. December 7th, they found two more victims. There was one where the body was mostly decomposed. The jogging pants were down. You could see knife marks on the skeleton, the white socks, and there was a bus ticket. So using that bus ticket, they were able to figure out that the victim was Richard Wayne, 17 years old and then right near the body under this decomposing um, mobile home there was another victim that was still you could still see the skin and stuff it was intact he was he was another african-american victim so i believe there were only two african-american victims and he was in his late 20s but they don't that's pretty much all they were able to determine about that victim but again it's where we keep seeing twos where he dumps them in twos and then at one point he dumps them in fours which again that that, that is something sometimes serial killers have um what they call you know uh, dump dumping places they have um now i can't think of what the actual term is but gary ridgeway the green river killer was known for that he had specific spots where he would dump the bodies so as i said that they now they were starting to focus on Eiler because someone called with a tip on him they had been dating him and, and then he left them, I don't know, they like had some kind of falling out. And at first they're like, yeah, he's just, you know, cause that's what happens when you get tips from people is they often are like, oh, this, it's my ex-boyfriend. Cause you know, and it's just bullshit trying to get back at people. So at first they're like, meh, but then they start looking into it and they start seeing all these things. And as they're looking into him, they are like, yeah, let's put him out on the radar because after they found Ralph Kalisa's body, and like I said, they're, that, he, um, when they pulled over the truck, so it was soon after Ralph Calise was was found, they pull Eiler over, and in his car, they found a bloody knife. Well, when they tested the blood on the knife, it matched Ralph Calise's blood. And then when they find, like, the surgical tape and the nylon rope, they start seeing, they start to gather this evidence against him that he probably killed at least Ralph Calise and probably other people. Well, then, the problem is... Since they'd never officially charged him with things, they were able to dismiss that evidence. So even, I think they were able to keep, like, that the the truck pattern, the tire patterns matched the ones at the crime scene as the same on his vehicle. But that was another, that's the uh, travesty referred to in the Freed to Kill, the shocking travesty that enabled him to kill again. This group, the group that handled it, felt that what they were doing is they were, you know, they were trying to keep this guy from killing him. And... The cops that had realized Eiler was probably doing this had called and left a note with another police station saying, hey, if you see Larry Eiler, keep your eye on him. They didn't say, like, arrest him or... So when the cop that saw Eiler but realized the truck that he pulled over was Eiler, he remembered that note. So in his mind, he was thinking, I'm, I'm hoping to get this guy off the street from killing people. And the really good thing about Freed to Kill... She's really good at showing the justifications and the the rationale of each group of people. So you can see this group of people, this is why they thought what they were doing was okay. But from this perspective, this is why that ended up fucking things up. And you can see how, well, when this group of people did it, this is how they felt. And then when this group of people sees it, this is how they felt. So you can kind of see all the d- different perspectives and see why it's so fucking complicated in this kind of situation. And how frustrating that because this group of people thought they were doing the right thing, they cut these corners that wound up getting him out of trouble. So basically, a sur- one of the survivors ended up IDing him. And so the cops start following him and trying to collect information. Well, then... Right. As they're trying to get all this shit together, he sues the cops saying they're targeting him and he lost the case. He was denied. He got arrested for the police murder. But that evidence from the him being pulled over in the truck, they couldn't use because it was considered illegal. So he got out on bail. They keep looking because obviously they still want to try to figure out how they can how they can get him because he obviously there are there are ties here. So they find, you know, they, they have little pinpoints on the maps of where all these killings, while the bodies were found. They notice that there's a pattern of calls being made from payphones after the kills. So basically, someone would be killed, their body would be dumped, someone would call from a payphone to someone that Eiler knew. One of Eiler's acquaintances would get a phone call from a payphone near where the cops find a body. So that's kind of an interesting coincidence that several times... I mean, it was quite a few times that calls were made from payphones right near where a body was found, and the calls went to someone Eiler knew. To give you an idea of an- another big reason why Eiler was suspected when this was, the bodies were found all over the place, it's because he commuted a lot. He worked in Greencastle, Indiana at a liquor store on Saturdays. He would go to a friend's in Terre Haute frequently and then on the weekends he lived with in chicago with his lover his lover's wife and kids so this is another big thing that's pointed out in the book is that he's traveling he's he hangs out in gay bars and so he's he's not trying to hide that he's homosexual so he's it's within that group so it's 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 the idea of he'll go If he's with his people, then he feels comfortable to be that way. But when he's just living his life and doing his daily thing, he doesn't want to acknowledge. He doesn't volunteer that. He doesn't, you know. And even in that group of people, I don't know that he would be like... I mean, I think um, that some of the people that were interviewed referred to each other as their lovers. So he might say, he does admit he was my lover and this guy was my lover. So, but it's very delicate and... It's interesting. It's just interesting to see the way people structure their lives. So he got involved in August 1981 of a man named John Dobrovoski was married to Sally and they had some kids. Yeah, I think they had two kids. Well, the thing is, Sally knew from the get go that John was homosexual and that he was never going to be sexually in a relationship with her. But she liked the stability of it. And they, you know, they were good friends. so they hadn't they basically had like had an agreement. You know, we'll get married. She liked the idea of having a handsome husband that helped provide for her. And even if she didn't get, you know, something sexual from him and, you know, maybe it's more of a roommate situation, everybody seemed to be cool with it to the point where once Larry got involved, she knew from the start they were lovers. and she welcomed him. So he was like, her buddy and they were just like this happy family where he would come and spend spend time with them on the weekends i think her mom even hung out there and you know the kids loved him he was good with the kids so they had their own their own family structure and it seemed i mean it seemed i won't say that it seemed completely stable (laughs) because john and larry had a tumultuous relationship to say it lightly they would just argue all the time they were jealous it was like Larry could not stop being jealous. He had to be jealous, but he would go out and sleep with other men, but he would get usually it was because he was pissed because he thought that John wasn't paying attention to him. So it was very tumultuous and all over the place. And I want to make it clear. I'm not saying anything for or against this. Would I guess it would be, basically be considered. Well, I guess it's not really polyamory. I don't know. My thing is, do your thing if you're comfortable with your thing. I don't give a fuck as long as you're not hurting people. In this case, he started hurting people, so that's not good. But their relationship wasn't hurting anyone. Those three living together with the kids in the house, the kids were taken care of. So it seemed like they were safe. As long as people are safe, I don't care if you have three people in your relationship or five or ten people. I don't care. Just, you know, don't be a serial killer. So what's interesting to note is that the attacks, so the attacks were happening. Isla was apparently attacking people and they were surviving and he was apparently testing the Placidil and things like that. The killings didn't start until after he met John. It seems like he had that rage building and then we see he meets John and that is apparently the catalyst that pushes him to escalate into murder. It, through the book, they, they say, well, it's interesting that after him and John had a fight, this body was found like the next day. So you start saying that maybe he had that anger and then it really expressed itself whenever him and John would fight. On May 7th, 1984, David Block was found. He's 22 years old with the same wound pattern in Zion, Illinois. Keep in mind, he had been, he hadn't gotten into trouble and, but they're still trying to find evidence to pin him. In his apartment building, the janitor discovers these garbage bags now most of the things that I read where it's just like they have like a paragraph about it it says the janitor's dog is the one that led him to the garbage in the book it goes further where the landlord was with his had his dog there they saw eiler with the garbage bags and the dog started barking at the garbage bags and then when the janitor went to throw the garbage bags into whatever receptacle he realized there was something weird in there and he looked and he found remains of a human person who had been dis- dismembered. And it was Danny Bridges, who was 15 years old. In the book, it says that at this point, he would have been the 23rd victim. He had 16 small cuts around his sternum like torture marks, five deep cuts with one inte- one where the intestine was protruding. The county medical examiner was the one, so the one who looked at the garbage bags, the county medical examiner that looked at the garbage bag was the first one who went into Gacy's crawlspace and saw the victims. So again, this is why I mentioned Gacy, is because you see that overlap where even some of the same people were involved with finding things out about Gacy and then also finding things out about Eiler. He was finally arrested August 21st, 1984. So he confessed to some of the, he confessed to some of the things that they didn't know. And he said that he had an accomplice named Robert Little. Let's talk about Robert Little for a second. He was the chair of the Department of Library Science at Indiana State University. They met in 1975. Eiler moved in with him along with his... And I swear, they kept saying lover. I don't know. I don't know if he was boyfriend. They were living together, so so Eiler and his boyfriend move in, live with him rent-free. The boyfriend leaves, but Eiler stays. Now, it, there's nothing that points that they were actually sexually involved or that they had, like... Anything other than a roommate relationship, but it is interesting that he funded like everything that Eiler did. He apparently liked to be like a uh, benefactor because he also they also mentioned that he it wasn't uncommon for him to kind of take care of people and help people out and things like that, and not necessarily be sexually involved with them. The lawyer that believed that Eiler was innocent at this point. There were different lawyers involved. He didn't feel like he could afford to handle the case himself. So he decided pro bono he would help the defense out. He really believed that an acquaintance had killed Danny Bridges, left him in Eiler's place. So Eiler felt like he had to dismember him to get rid of him because he figured, you know, my friend did this and I'm incriminated anyway now. So so he left the body for Eiler to dispose of. I re- recently, we talked about Robert Durst. So, and Robert Durst said, I accidentally killed someone. It was an accident, self-defense, but I was—I knew I'd get in trouble and no one would believe me. So I dismembered the body and hid it. It's a very Durst idea. And so some people may still think that he had an accomplice that did this thing. But finally, later on, shippers believe- finally admitted, okay, After looking at everything after all these years, he did it. And I'm disappointed that I didn't, couldn't acknowledge that earlier and that I didn't see it earlier. But that's how good Eiler was. So many people believe that Eiler was innocent because he was so warm and charismatic. Robert Little, they could not connect him with anything. And he wound up being acquitted. In 1986, Eiler was convicted and he was supposed to get death by lethal injection. Like I said before, he was his trial was at the same place Gacy was convicted six years earlier. He did. OK, so this cult thing. Eiler did apparently claim that he was a member of a cult that killed for fun. He said he didn't know about the Kentucky and Wisconsin murders, but he did know about the Illinois and Indiana murders. And he tried to plea bargain where he he got convicted of the murder of Kalis, I believe, or of Danny Bridges. And. He was trying to say, hey, if we can take me off the death penalty, I'll give you more information. But it just seemed like it was going to be shady and they didn't want to deal with it. So they didn't really uh, buy into his deal. He ended up dying in 1994 of an AIDS-related disease. There was one reference that said he died in 1996, but everything else I read said 1994. After his death, he gave his lawyer permission. (laughs) Let me rephrase that. He wasn't like a ghost that appeared to his lawyer. Before he died, he told his lawyer, after I am dead, you can tell people that I confess to killing 21 people. Posthumously, he reveals he killed 21 people. He was known as the interstate killer, highway killer, or highway murderer. And the book explains why he doesn't have a more colorful name is, and I quote, because of the homosexual nature of the murders, the news media never bothered to tag the killer with an official-sounding nickname, such as the Hillside Strangler. So that's Leary Eiler. And like everything, there's more details. But I think that gives you a really good picture of what the cops were facing and what was happening during that time period and how it might be – and just how how it looked, having all those different victims and all those different ways that they were killed to try to tie them together – As I was looking things up and trying to cross-reference, like, who was on the I-70 Strangler list, and who was on Baumeister's list, and who was on Eilers, and that kind of thing. First of all, it was confusing, because I was looking up I-70 Strangler. But there's also an I-70 killer, who is someone different that apparently was shooting people, I believe, in the 90s. So they were known as the I-70 killer, or I-70, I-35 killer. And there's tons of, there's a bunch of articles on that. There's hardly anything on the I-70 Strangler, in general. But... I did happen upon some articles. So when I pulled up Wikipedia for the, the only thing I could really find was the Wikipedia thing about I 70 Strangler. And he has Delvoid Baker on that list. And that's interesting because Delvoid Baker was on Eiler's list in the book. But the notes say in Wikipedia, some people feel that he's not, shouldn't be on the I 70 Strangler list. Now, to really, and I'm really glad I found this because it really helps paint the picture of how confusing this whole thing was, is I found an Indianapolis newspaper article from September 18th, 1990. The title is, Slangs of Gay Hoosiers Had Been Linked Before. I'm going to go ahead and read the article because it's it's brief. And this is from the Indianapolis News. This is not the first time police have linked some of nine men slain and left in rural Indiana and Ohio in the last 10 years. Investigators previously have hooked some of the slangs together and reported that some others were not linked. Monday, while not saying the deaths were the work of one killer, Ohio authorities described similarities in all nine cases. In May 1983, Indiana State Police said two deaths were similar, Daniel S. McNeve, 22, and John L. Roach, 21, both of Indianapolis. Although the details of McNeve's death were not provided, Roach was found stabbed to death in December 1982 in a field near Putnamville. Neither McNeve nor Roach were listed by Ohio Authorities Monday. However, three months before linking Roach and McNeve, state police had linked Roach's death with the slayings of Michael Petrie and Delvoye Baker, both on Monday's list. In June 1983, the deaths of two other men on the new list, Maurice Riley and Michael Andrew Taylor, were linked to the deaths of seven other Indianapolis gay men, including McNeve and Roach. Also in June 1983, a state police investigator said McNeve and Roach were killed by at least two independent killers. Later, police said the same person was responsible for killing Taylor, Petrie, and Riley, while someone else killed Baker. Other investigations have touched on similar killings. In July 1983, police agencies formed a task force to probe the killings of at least 15 male prostitutes whose bodies were found in Indiana and Illinois. In 1983, August Gus Cato of Carmel was called to testify before a grand jury on the slayings of several men linked to the Indianapolis gay community. State police failed to link Cato to any of the deaths. In July 1986, Larry W. Eiler was sentenced to death for the torture slaying of a male prostitute. Later, he refused to talk to investigators who linked him to other killings. So let me point some things out real fast. They mention Daniel McNeve and John Roach were connected. Their deaths were similar. From the research I've done today, it looks like McNeve and Roach have been officially tied to Eiler. They mentioned that Roach and McNeve had been linked to Petrie and Baker. It looks like, at the end of the day, Petrie fell under I-70 killer, and Baker was under Eiler. So then they mention mention Riley and Taylor. Riley and Taylor were both I-70 Strangler's victims. So you can see how confusing (laughs) that this was for police and everybody to try to figure out who ties to what. At first, they thought that Petrie, Baker, McNeve, and Roach were all victims of the same person, and it turns out that was not the case, that Petrie was actually I-70 Strangler's victim. It's really nice to be able to see that snapshot where they literally list, okay, this was linked and then this was linked, but now we realize this. So you can see that process of elimination while it was happening during that time period. In that same paper, there is another article, and it's titled... And keep in mind, this is the, uh, this is written in, like, 19, what, 1990. So they had different PC standards then. Nine murdered gays from Indianapolis. And I'm going to read this because it's it's pretty short, too. Police have linked nine killings over the past ten years. The victims all had ties to the gay community in Indianapolis. Found in Preble County, Ohio, were Eric Allen Roetger, 17, found in May 1985. Nude from the waist up, he had been sexually assaulted and suffered a burn on his left shoulder before he was strangled with a rope. Michael Allen Glenn, 29 found in August 1986, not identified until a 1989 fingerprint check, strangled with a rope. Stephen L. Elliott, 26, found in August 1989, wearing only underwear, strangled with a rope. Clay Russell Boatman, 32, found in August 1990, Boatman's car was found in a parking lot of our place at Alabama and Pennsylvania streets in Indianapolis, strangled manually, found in Dart County, Ohio, an unidentified male between 20 and 30, found last week. Cause and time of death were not have not been determined. Found in Indiana. Michael Petrie, 15. Found in June 1980 in a Hamilton County drainage ditch. Nude. Cause of death undetermined. Maurice Taylor, 23. Found in July 1982 in six inches of water in Weasel Creek in Hamilton County outside Atlanta. Nude from the waist up. Cause of death undetermined. Delavoyd Baker, 14. Found in October 1982 in Hamilton County. Strangled. James Robbins, 21 found in October 1987 in a Shelby County drainage ditch about one and a half miles south of Ginville, nude, strangled. Michael Andrew Riley, 22, found in June 1983, and than a foot of water in a Hancock County drainage ditch five miles southeast of Greenfield. Nude from the waist up, strangled. So going through those names, all of them except for one eventually settled under the I-70 stranglers list. The only one that didn't, was Delvoid Baker, which it looks like was tied to Eiler. It was just trying to look at all the different names and, and where they fell eventually in all my different sources. It was kind of a doozy. And you would see things like Delvoid Baker's on like, you know, two or three lists. And then, but I feel like Free to Kill did a really good job of researching stuff. And I feel like it's, it sounds like Delvoid Baker probably was Eiler's victim. But again, you have three, two or three serial killers out there. So it's just ridiculous to just, you know, figure out which one of them did it. And, you know, the end result is the poor person was murdered. That is just kind of a microcosm of one aspect of the serial killer reality is you may have several in one place at one time. And it may seem hard to believe, but, you know, there's lots of people. And and when you have that formula of where you have an easy victim base, then you can see how predators will go to that place and be active for years because of all of the things that that make that such an easy target place. That's pretty much that on the Baumeister, I-70 killer, uh, I-70 strangler, and Eiler portion of the show. I will do more where I talk about other time periods and places where you had several serial killers killing at the same time, because it is vastly interesting to see how they compare and, you know, how the... The challenges of the cops to try to figure out who who's doing it now let's jump into dexter and we'll talk about dexter a little bit and then robert hansen whom the serial killer is based on for this uh, season of dexter new blood i am going to spoiler alert and so if you haven't watched it don't listen to the section watch it and then come back and listen or if you don't mind spoilers then go ahead and listen by the time that i watched them there were three more episodes so we have five episodes total. Last time I had spoken about it, there were two that I talked about. So now we have three episodes to cover, and I'm not going to get super in-depth. It's just going to be very high level of what was happening. We have Dexter trying to cover his tracks from killing Matt Caldwell. Then all of a sudden, this bumbling forensic guy shows up, and it looks like he's going to be a total joke. It turns out he's, like, really fucking good, and he's literally just, like, walking through how Dexter did it as Dexter stands there fucking befuddled and terrified. (laughs) He's trying to, you know, cover his tracks and try to figure out how he's going to get out of this. Well, then magically, Matt's dad, Kurt, says he heard from Matt. Now, everyone else is like, great, this is awesome. You know, he's alive. That's that's nice. Dexter's like, what the fuck? Because I very much know that he's not alive. So I know that Kurt's lying. Why the fuck would he be lying? His first thought is, is he that distraught? Like, can he not handle his son's death so he just has to pretend like he's alive? But that seems weird. So he's like, you know, he starts noticing something's going on here. And then when the dad is pressed by Angela, the chief, she's he's just really like slippery and it doesn't really hold. Well, then she decides to run the credit cards again. And it turns out that Matt's credit card was used in New York. Of course, a podcaster gets involved. We have Molly, the podcaster. And she shows up trying to figure out what's going on, if there's a story there or not. So they take a trip together to New York because there's also a conference there about missing people and finding connections in cases that maybe you hadn't seen before or how to reveal those connections. So they can kind of kill two birds with one stone on that trip. Well, in that trip, Angel Batista is the one speaking at the conference. Angela gets talking to Angel, and Angel mentions the Trinity killer and Dexter and Deborah Morgan and how they're both dead and it's really sad. And then he remembers, then he says, oh yeah, he even had a kid, Harrison. So Angela's like, yeah, oh fuck. Like how common is the name Harrison? Like is it's possible, but huh, I don't know. This seems kind of fishy. So she's that kind of got that mulling around the back of her head. In the meantime, they see video surveillance of Matt checking out. And it is not Matt. It does not look like him at all. So they're realizing, okay, Kurt lied. And so now she's also got that. In the meantime, we see Kurt trap a girl in his cabin and then kill her. And he pointedly says when she's on the camera and she starts taking off her shirt because she figures that's what he wants and he's disgusted. He's like, it's not about that. I don't want that. And he gets angry. So for him, it's obviously not about sex. It's about the hunt. So that's another big piece of the puzzle that we see put in there is which we knew they had shown the masked killer shooting the a girl as she ran out of the cabin so we knew that the guy liked to hunt but it's interesting to see the piece where it's not about rape it's not about sex it's about the hunt and that he's actually disgusted by the fact that she would think it's about the sex Harrison has some things going on (laughs) he starts making friends he joins a wrestling team Well, his new friends are bullying this kid, so he decides to help the kid out because you can tell there's something in him that understands the kid or feels empathy for the kid. There's something about it that he's connecting with his kid, and so he's the cool kid that actually helps the loser. Him listening to a podcast about how his mom was killed, and you see him very emotional. Then the next thing you know, the bullied kid has supposedly stabbed Harrison— Harrison fought him off and cut his leg. And then there's the kid had, I think he even had guns in the bag. And then he had that notebook. And they do show the kid with, earlier they show them FaceTiming or whatever. And the kid shows him, hey, I want to show you my notebook. And you see that he has drawn very bloody graphic images of killing his classmates. And there are names. So he's got this book that's very incriminating. So he's obviously thinking very heavily about doing, you know, a school shooting. So you've got that there. So those that seed's been planted. Thing is, Harrison said, I found out that he was going to shoot people. I went to stop him. He attacked me. And so it was self-defense. And then he becomes this big hero because then it, it's, they find that there was the list of people he was planning on shooting. So it's obvious that Harrison saved people's lives. Now, it looks like the kid's going to die because of the cut that he gave him. was um, like It got like an artery or something. So he's probably not going to make it he has mixed feelings and you can see he has like all these mixed feelings where he felt that the kids were bullying that that the bullied kid had reason to be angry because he was bullied and those people were shitty to him and they made his life miserable so he had mixed feelings about about hurting that kid that was who had such anger from being treated so badly so you, you see that the um the difficulty and the complexity there and so so it Harrison goes into this party Conflicted like he doesn't know that he's a hero At this point It seems that that that's his struggle Well he does some drugs And he winds up saying to the Chief of police daughter That his dad's not who he says he is and is not Jim Lindsay Well then he like almost dies So he OD'd Thankfully he's saved And then it comes out that they had been doing drugs at the party Dexter wants to kill the dealer He actually is ready to put him in the trunk When the cops show up He winds up finding out who was making the drugs, and he goes to kill the drug, the guy who was making the drugs. Well, the cops show up then, too, so he has to quickly make it look like the guy OD'd. He kills the guy who almost killed his son, inadvertently, and there's that whole thing happening. Well, Dexter also realizes, you know, he's Mr. Forensic Blood Guy. He realizes, I don't think Harrison's being honest. They go through the 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 playing out of what he thinks probably really happened and that he thinks Harrison attacked the kid, well, then you have Deb and Dexter fighting, going back and forth. Like, you just want him to be bad because you're bad. You're a terrible person. You want him to be a terrible person. And this isn't right. You shouldn't do this to him. So you have that whole thing. And I still do like having Deb be his, his voice that he tries to balance things with, how he tries to bounce things off of and... and you know, is trying to reason with him. It is interesting. I still think, like, it's really, it has to be really intense to be Deb in this season because she's always yelling. She's always angry. She's always, like, violent. I know I said last time it might be cathartic for her because they were divorced. I've read that they actually are amicable, but, I mean, who the fuck knows? I would just think, like, as an actress, every time you go to the set, you have to just be fucking pissed and you know so maybe it feels good maybe it's a good anger management tactic is you get to just scream and yell and so it might actually be pretty fun to be deb but she is she is very intense in this this season the end of this the worlds are colliding we have angela get home from the conference audrey tells her hey harrison told me that that's not jim's real name angela has already heard there was a tri- there was a serial killer, a guy named Dexter Morgan with a son named Harrison had been involved who disappeared. We think he, they're pretty sure he, they're positive he's dead. But she's like, mm, don't know. Well, then Audrey's like, oh, that's not his real name. So she's like, fuck, is my boyfriend a fucking serial killer? Well, then we have Dexter realizing Harrison has the same dark passenger, and he's happy. Because he can finally feel like he can relate to his son. And that he has that partner that he's always wanted. And there's that mixture of where he's not in love. It's not great. You know? Because there's a lot that goes on with it. There's a lot of baggage. But overall, that's the thing he's been searching for this whole fucking time. Is someone he can relate to. And if it winds up as his own son, how fucking amazing would that be? So you can see how he has those emotions and how that's all kind of lining up. And we also see where Harrison's going to leave because Dexter's trying to control him. And as he's leaving, Kurt happens to see him and takes him under his wing. And where he's like, oh, I just noticed something about you. So again, at this point, we know that Kurt is a serial killer. So we see the serial killer recognizing a quality... And this kid and the M.O. has been his victims are female. So it it's obviously not that he wants to. I don't know. It's I don't think that they're trying to point to maybe that he's going to take him under his wing and make him a victim. I think it's since he says, I noticed there's something about you. It's the dark passenger recognizing a dark passenger. So it's interesting that it might become like a, um, a Luke Skywalker position where you have. You know, one person wanting to go to the dark side, Kurt, and then maybe his dad will be like, come to the other side, where everybody's going to be killing somebody, but it's just the way that they do it. So it'll be interesting to see if it does become a thing where he has to choose between the two or there's that kind of conflict. And I will say that I like it. I like how they're developing that. I think it's interesting to have Harrison developing this way. And... I really like Jack Alcott as Harrison. I think he does a fantastic job. There are moments when he has gestures and things that he does that it really seems like something Dexter would do. And he's just really good at capturing that complexity where you're not sure if, is he does he have real feelings? Does he, you know, and, and if he has them, what's going on? And then to see, like, at first you're thinking, did he do it? But the way that he's reacting, it makes sense that things would have gone the way that he said they went. But then again, and of course, as they reveal, as Dexter walks through everything, that the main reason he feels guilty is because he did kill this kid. Or he did stop this kid, but it wasn't out of an altruistic, necessarily, kind of thing. It was he has this rage. He wanted to feel it. He wanted to feel this dark passenger let loose. But... You have where it is kind of in the code. So this kid, he did have these pictures and that list of names. So it is possible that this kid was going to do that. So maybe he did save their lives, but he still feels conflicted because that's not why he necessarily did it. I like how they're balancing, leveling, they're adding all those levels. And I think everybody's doing a really good job keeping it interesting and fun. And I'm eager to see how they move forward. Kurt Cal- Caldwell is now revealed to be the serial killer that likes to shoot women. And as I talked about in the last episode, he is ba- that my thought was as soon as I saw the snow and you know that Dexter ends up with serial killers, it's probably Robert Hansen because he's a well-known Alaskan serial killer that was known for shooting his victims like, and hunting them like game. And as, the, as I watched the episodes, it was very obvious that's what was happening. So let's talk about Robert Hansen for a few minutes. We'll just go through it uh, pretty quickly here. And I had already like read a book and known a little bit about it. But but to actually talk about this in the same episode as Eiler, Baumeister, and the I-70 Strangler, he was killing at the same time period that they were. He was just doing it in Alaska and he had a different victim base. But it's just, again, I'm always intrigued by these things that that wind up being in common as I'm researching. And that it happens to see those those things happen to line up. In that way, when I'm just doing random things for an episode, he was. Uh, so the main reference for my research for this was "Butcher Baker: A True Account of a Serial Murderer" by Walter Gilmore and Leland E. Hale. Did also watch. Um, I found there was a documentary called "Butcher Baker: Mind of a Monster," and it was based on this book. It even had the co- one of the co-authors in there, so it was very similar to the book, although it did go a little more in depth and have some more information. I found a documentary called Ice Cold Killers. It's a series. I just watched this. It's the first episode. It's called Hunting Humans. I just watched that one. And that basically had all the same basic information as the other stuff that I had, that the main reference had. I'm going to go basically by the structure of the book. And it opens with, you have a woman named Kitty. She had been chained up in a basement, raped on a rug. The man handcuffed her, was taken to her plane, she got away, a truck happened to be coming, and she got away. So she goes to the cops, she mentions the man had a Piper Super Cub, which was later ID'd as Robert Hansen's. So Robert Hansen, is, uh, he was five six, one 170 pounds, medium build, short brown hair, crossed front teeth, and acne scars, and he wore glasses. He also had a stutter. That is another thing that we will see where the acne scars across front teeth and the stutter. He was not popular with the ladies. So we see that growing up being unattractive to the opposite sex, how eventually that was part of his, the soup that made him a serial killer because he had anger for women. He allows him to search his car and home. In the car, they found 223 cartridges ace bandages and rubber surgical gloves. the basement of his home was like exactly as Kitty described it except for um, it she, you couldn't see where she had been chained up it, that wasn't there still. but overall it was there was a bearskin rug there and things like that. He had a wife and two kids. there is a note that he it turns out his flying license was denied because he was taking lithium for manic depression. So when he would fly, he would do things like write the call numbers really small so you couldn't see it. And he just had different ways that he would avoid being identified or he'd like use someone else's information so that way they would be tracked and not him. So he was still able to do his flying. Unfortunately, Kitty was, it was hard to believe her because she was, uh, she was a dancer. I can't remember if she was a sex worker, but it was, I guess in some ways it was fundamentally the same thing at this point in this place. And in this place, it was, uh, there was lots of open, open space. And then in the the town or the city or whatever, you had a bunch of topless bars and stuff like that. And it it was a thing where people came in and out all the time. It was, you know, it wasn't unusual for people to be passing through. You So what, that's another, again, that's where it's prime. It's a prime place to prey on people because there were lots of transients. And, you know, if someone disappeared, it wasn't a big deal because you figure they just went on to the next town. And there was even in the Butcher Baker documentary, one of the women said, you know, you show up and basically they're like, okay, if you want to work here, we'll give you an apartment. But of course, it's basically just like a fucking closet, you know. And so it was a lot like um, working for the company store where you would agree to work and then you would be paid by like company script instead of money. And then you would basically just always end up being in debt. So it was kind of similar where they always wound up being stuck there. They always wound up indebted to the people that they were working for. So it was similar to like some kind of indentured servitude. And that's another way that they got people stuck there or that people wanted to run away because it was not a good situation to be in. So then a body is found in the Knick River near it, a uh, Shelley Morrow... She had agreed to do a photo shoot with a stranger for $300. When they found her, her head was wrapped in an ace bandage like a blindfold, and they found shells from a... Um, 223 shells. Then there was another body found near her that was also shot with 223. Some other women disappeared, such as Paula Golding, 30 years old, in 1983, Kathy Disher, 23, in late 1982, Dylan Fry, 20 in September 1983, Karen Bomsgard, age 24, Sue Luna, 23, Tamara Peterson, 21, Teresa Watson, 22, and Angela Federn, 26. The pattern they were noticing is that these women are all in their 20s, 5 feet 4 to 5 feet 7, 120 to 125 pounds, slim, busty, topless dancers, and they generally had big money dates with a stranger before they disappeared. Hansen was on the radar when Kitty was caught. As they're looking to Hansen, they find out that his dad was a baker, and so he trained Hansen as a baker. His dad was authoritative to the point where Robert was left handed. His dad made him right with his right hand. And they believe that maybe that led to the stutter they developed because it fucked with his brain, it, like cross wires in his brain. That's kind of fucked that his dad was so against him being left handed, he made him be a right her. So, yeah. Again, that's, we see another piece of the serial killer puzzle of Robert Hansen. Robert Pattern said that a man had kidnapped her, bound her. She had sex with him to, you know, cause she was, um, I mean, she was hired to have sex with him, but he technically did kidnap her and bind her. But, you know, it's one of those things where she's like, well, maybe if I have sex with him and it's willing, then he'll let me go and I can survive this situation. Well, at first, he was not going to take her back until she was finally like, no, you know, it's no big deal. I won't say anything. And she kind of plays along with him. So he let her go. The man she described fit Hansen. She said, and I quote, His penis was shaped funny, like it was deformed or something. It was short, but very large round. So apparently, he might have had a deformed penis. But I don't know, because I didn't see really anything else where any of the other women said... That his penis was weird. And the, they asked Kitty, like, hey, did you notice anything strange? And she's like, I don't know. But it could also be that when they see it, they're terrified. So they don't notice that because they're too busy trying to break free or, you know. So I think that's a possibility as well. So I don't know. It could be that that might be another reason why he was so angry and maybe if somebody commented on it that was one of the things that got them killed and if you didn't then maybe he was like okay you go because he definitely did let some go obviously there was another survivor who said that he had raped her and bound her but he let her go saying no one would believe her she memorized his license plate and they trace it to him But the problem is she didn't want to personally talk to the cops, so she was relaying relaying the information through someone else. And she didn't want to actually come forward herself, so that didn't really go anywhere. But again, we have someone tying Hansen to these situations. And I'm always amused when you see the license plate traces them because there's been several other cases where serial killers were caught because their license plate were traced to them. Like a a big one is uh, Son of Sam Berkowitz, David Berkowitz. Hansen was a kleptomaniac, and he admitted that he enjoyed stealing, and that stealing gave him, like, he would basically orgasm when he stole, and that it was different than anything that is sexual. So he just loved that feeling of, of stealing and controlling and get away getting away with it. There were cabins broken into, and the owners started to work together to try to figure out who was doing it. Well, the when the plane comes down, there's um, specific, like, tread marks or marks from the plane, and they tend to look pretty uniform, I guess, except this one, one of the, I don't know the words, one of the pieces had broken off one of the legs, the landing leggy things. So it had a very distinctive trademark when he would land. So they notice that, and they start researching, and they narrow it down to Robert Hansen's plane. I don't think that, it seemed like nothing was really came of that, except when the cops were going around asking people about it, then they found this out and they got a list of the stuff that people were missing. When when they did a house search, they did find some of those things at Hanson's place. So he was the one who was breaking into their cabins and stealing. Another big damning piece of information is that he was an award-winning bow hunter. And he was really good with guns and shooting. And he had lots of guns. And again, these men were killed, most mostly with a high-powered rifle by being shot. Now, at one point he had been married when he was pretty young. I think he was like pretty much like a couple years out of high school. He got married. Um, he burned down the bus barn for the school buses. <laughs> because, again, he was bullied and he had that anger. And he winds up going to jail for it. And then his wife divorces him. And later he gets remarried. One thing that's revealed when they're questioning him is the question of, well, you have a wife. Is there trouble in your marriage? Is that, is that why you're going to see sex workers? And he's like, well, no, there's not a problem with my marriage. But it's not appropriate for me to get a blowjob from my wife. I'm not going to make my wife do that. Like, she's a lady. Ladies don't do that. Again, you see another piece of the psychology of Robert Hansen that he has that classic Madonna whore complex where a woman is either a saint or she's a sinner. I'll get into more into that here in a moment. They found... A disguise kit. So he had phony mustaches, skin adhesive, and fingernail polish. They had also found ace bandages and sacks of cash with bakery receipts. So it was possible that he had embezzled. He also had made an insurance claim where he said a bunch of his trophies were stolen. And then later on, they see the trophies back in the house. So then, so he also might have done insurance fraud. They finally found a Mini-14, which uses 223 bullets. So that was a big huge breakthrough and it matched the bullets on the victim's bodies so the night of the incident where kitty had said that she was abducted and raped the reasons he was not charged for that was because he has a buddy he had a buddy that had an alibi he said no he was with me the guy stuck to it for a long time and then finally he was just like okay i made it up i didn't think it was a big deal but he wasn't with me and the way that it sounds in the book, the wife doesn't, it seems like he doesn't really think that anything Hanson was doing was that bad. Don't know if that's true, but that's the way it was construed. He finally did admit he chained Kitty in the basement, and then she got away, so he went back to his house to remove the evidence. So where the, like the hole where the, um, the chain went in, he had taken the, the thing out and covered it with putty and hid a bunch of the stuff. So he did hide some things to try to, you know, cover his tracks. He did say, so once he started talking, he said as long as the girl would go along with him, they were safe. But if they panicked, he'd panic. And then sometimes they, uh, some of the women got their hands on a fo- like one of the guns, and then at that point it was self-defense. But he would say he had very specific rules. So like, if he was with a woman and she propositioned him and said that she would have sex with him for money, then in his mind, she's a sinner, she's a whore, it's okay to kill her. But if he's with a woman and say it's just like he actually – his wife was in Europe with his kids and he put out an, um, an ad in the singles thing. So a woman came over. She wasn't a sex worker or anything like that. She just came over for like a date and he asked, can we have sex on the bearskin rug? And she was like, no, I don't think that that's a good idea right now. And he ended up being like, okay. And then he let her go and nothing ever happened. So you can see is so she passed the test. She was the Madonna. So she didn't deserve to be killed. Or if he had this certain plan, this is how things are going to play out, and they break that plan by freaking out, then he would snap. And the way that he said it is if they didn't cooperate, and I quote, they stayed there. So he doesn't really come right out and say, I shot the bitch or anything like that. But he definitely heavily, heavily, heavily implies that he killed them, that he left them there and he buried them there. One woman had a knife on her and tried to use it on him, but he fought. And then he makes a comment. I can remember she was laying face down and uh, I just stuck her. So, again, you don't have him saying it's very passive. It's it's never like I was angry and so I stabbed her several times. I plunged the knife into her. You know, it's, um, well, this happened and then, oh, all of a sudden the knife. And it's, he doesn't even say the knife was, he's, I stuck her. He also refers to, passingly calls it, a summertime project. He's known for hunting his victims, where he would release them, let them run a little ways, or let them run, and he would hunt them. He never, that I saw, he never officially said that he hunted them. It was usually, you know, they were getting away, so I had to stop them. Or it was self-defense, so I had to stop them. In the last podcast on the left, they do a couple episodes. They mention that that's not true and that that is an exaggeration. And I have mixed feelings because, yes, we don't have absolute proof that he hunted them. And so, therefore, we don't know that he hunted them. But I think that since he was a big fucking hunter and that was his, like, identity was being a hunter and everybody knew he loved hunting and... He collected trophies. I mean, he had this whole trophy room of all these different heads of things that he had killed and he entered contests. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that he probably hunted them. I'm inclined to think that that was probably a thing that was done. It makes a more colorful story, sure, but if he didn't do it, he still killed these women. Even if he wasn't hunting them, he still shot them and kept doing it. So I don't know that it necessarily matters if he hunted them or not. It does make it more disturbing <laughs> that he might have hunted them. It, do- it does make that more psych- psychologically terrible. But again, it's, we don't know for sure whether he did or not as far as what I've seen and read so far. But as always, if I learn something different, I will be happy to share it with you later. He would tell women different stories You know, when he first started doing it, he would just be himself and he would, you know, pick up women. Of course, he's trying to make himself feel better and to be more confident. So he would say, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor. Well, then once the body started turning up, he got scared people would recognize him. So that's why he had the disguise kit. So when he would pick up women, he didn't want people to see him or recognize him. So he would start using disguises. When the lawyer is doing his, one of his spiels, the trial, he mentions, you know, because Hanson was a baker, that he served people donuts. He was part of the community. And when he said that he served us donuts for 17 years, I thought of Dexter and how Dexter, when he worked at the police station, he would always bring in donuts for the coworkers. And that was one of his ways to fit in. So I don't know that that has anything directly to do with Hanson. But it is, it's just an interesting little side note there that both Dexter and he served pastries to people, and they were serial killers. Of course, Dexter's not a real person, but you know what I mean. They had found maps in his place where he had X marks, and they finally realized, shit, is that where he has had hid bodies? Well, he finally said, yes, some of those are where I hid bodies, and he took them. And I quote, what was uncanny, though, was the fact that troopers didn't have to dig more than one hole for each body. Henson had been right on target, A remarkable feat, considering that some bodies had been there for at least two years. They were able to find six of the bodies that way. Hansen did admit to seven, and ultimately they could account for 12 victims. He wound up getting 460 years to life, and in 2014 he died of natural causes. A side note, at the time that the Butcher Baker book was written, they didn't know who the Green River Killer was. So some people wondered if Hansen had done it. Because they stopped about the same time of his arrest. And he had a plane so he could fly. So that's another interesting little side note that, and especially in an episode of serial killers killing in the same areas and during the same time periods, that they thought maybe he could be the Green River Killer. Well, we all know now that the Green River Killer was Gary Ridgway. Going to talk about the killer on Dexter and compare him to Robert Hansen. And then we'll be done with the episode. The killer on Dexter, Kurt Caldwell, is an upstanding member of the community. He owns a local local truck stop. I believe he's the unofficial mayor. He takes transient women to a cabin, locks them in, watches them on camera, lets them run away and shoots them as they run. One of the victims takes a piece of mirror and slices his face with it. He shoots her in the eye. He's mad that she ruined the game and then he shoots her again because he's angry at her. And the the chief of police believes that there is a serial killer in the community. The similarities of Kurt Codwell with Robert Hansen is Robert Hansen was also an upstanding member of the community. He would take transient women to a cabin, and he shot most of them. One, one victim did pull a knife on him. Now, um, I don't believe she cut him, but she did pull a knife. He had some of the victims fight him and ruin his fun, and he would say, like, they fought back and I don't like it. There was a point where Hansen said a woman fought him and he shot her point blank. So that leads me to believe maybe from the show, that that is based on one of Hanson's victims that where he's mad at her, she ruins the game, so he shoots her in the eye. And in real life, Hanson said, a woman fought with him and he ended up shooting her. So that sounds very similar to one of his actual kills. Now, with the case of Hanson, there was a woman cop who thought that, that there was a serial killer and was trying to tie some of these together. Well, at that point, everybody started making fun of her. And, you know, women cops weren't really common then. So it was, um, so she was a So she wasn't taken very seriously and she ended up not pursuing it. So that's interesting that in New Blood, you have the woman chief of police where she believes there's a serial killer and people are kind of cynical, but she's trying to tie those to connect those dots. Again, I'm not sure that that's a direct thing, but it's kind of a coincidence. So I'm wondering if they did pull that from Hanson because as part of the loosely based on aspect, some differences, Hanson did rape and very clearly Caldwell does not. And then Hanson used disguises, and Caldwell we have not seen. Well, he does end up covering his face, but, you know, the woman already pretty much knows who he is. Then Hanson also didn't lock them up for days and watch them with a camera. He pretty much did his thing and then killed them if things went askew. So overall, you can definitely see where Kurt Caldwell is based on Robert Hanson, and then you can see where they completely, where they diverge. And I do think that... As I said before, the hunting definitely makes it more interesting and it makes it more colorful. I like that they don't make him rapey because they're not saying this is Robert Hansen. They're just, it's it's like their version of him. So I'm okay with that. I think that they, TV shows usually end up using rape too much and sometimes it's just, it's not necessary. And I like that with this version, they're Robert Hansen is it's not about the sex, it's truly about the hunting. So I like that they're developing that and I don't have to see rape. Because if I can avoid it, I would prefer to. I like how they're building this character and making that those aspects depart from Hansen, but that they have this basis in reality that they can pull from that makes him realistic. Because there are specific things, as I said, that really did happen in real life with Robert Hansen and his victims. So I am intrigued to see how everything pans out. Uh, we did see at one point that Dexter slipped and revealed that he knew that Matt had been driving the boat that killed people and Kurt Codwell's like, what the fuck? So then that's setting up the, the tension of, oh, is he going to, are him and you know him and Dexter, how is that going to pan out? Is he going to make Dexter a target? And, you know, so I'm very interested in seeing how they, everything winds up coming to a finale and, and all that. There you go. That was a lot. Thank you for sticking with me. And I am spent. Things will be happening. We'll be back again. Um, Igor and I will be back again. We'll do stuff. Stay tuned to see what we're going to talk about next. I've got all kinds of things in the hopper. And, uh, of course, I will definitely keep up with Dexter. And uh, I appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you keep an eye on all the social media and stuff. And we have more fun things coming. And we appreciate you. As always, thank you for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and murderlabmedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on murderlabmedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats, but the mystery of the socks remained unsolved.